Well, theoretically, a, a trial where you're standing before a judge, a trial is where you would determine guilt or innocence. Not sure if anyone here has ever had that time where you're actually standing before a judge and you are going to be declared guilty or innocent. I would imagine that must be a terrifying feeling, that, that whatever's going to come out of his mouth is going to be the final verdict. It happened to Jesus, of course, we just read it, declared guilty by the Jews and then the Romans, and yet he was the only innocent man that ever walked the face of the earth. He was declared guilty, but he was completely innocent. One day, of course, we will stand before Jesus and, and as the ultimate judge. We will stand before him, the perfect judge, and he will again declare us innocent or guilty of our sin. And we all have sin. Therefore, this world then has this problem, many problems due to sin. One of them is our guilt. It's everywhere. We see it in mental illness, substance abuse, depression, fear, worry, and anxiety, and all the meds that go with it. The world is drowning in its guilt due to sin. And most people don't even know it. Don't even know the, the core reason for the guilt. How can that guilt be removed. And there's only one way. And Matthew's going to tell us about that this morning. So hopefully you're in Matthew 27. We are turning the corner here, people. We've got a couple more weeks, and uh, we are going to be finishing up Matthew, which is a great accomplishment. Last week we saw Judas actually bring Jesus's enemies right to him and arrest him. We saw the failure of Peter when he denied even knowing Jesus three times. We saw Jesus knowing what it feels like to be abandoned, to be rejected, and to be failed by people like us. And because Jesus was rejected by men, we, through faith in him, can be accepted by God. And this week, we're going to see the final verdict that sent Jesus to the cross. And Jesus goes from being handed over to the Jews to now being handed over to the Romans. But first, there is the little matter of the end of Judas. And so, I know some of you might freak out about this, but just bear with me. I'm going to skip, not skip, skip, but skip temporarily the first two verses. We'll get back to them, okay? Deep breaths. We're going to start in verse 3. So look at verse 3 with me. Then, with, or then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful for us to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then it was fulfilled but the what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price on him whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Uh, so much like Peter, who as soon as he heard the rooster crow last week, that moment that we kind of touched on, after he had denied Jesus for the third time and the rooster crow kind of pierced the night, he knew that he was guilty. 
He knew that he had denied his Lord, and it all kind of came crashing down on him, much like Judas, as he sees what's going on, as he sees the result of him turning over his friend and his Savior, Jesus, it all comes crashing down on him as well. Judas sees what's happening. He sees that Jesus is headed for the cross, and Matthew tells us that he changed his mind. This is not a change of heart. This is a change of mind. It's literally what it says in the Greek. He tried to return the 30 pieces of silver, and the priests want no part of that, which is absolutely ridiculous when you think about it. It's like, oh, now you're worried about ethics and morality? You're just railroading the world's only innocent person to the cross, and now you're like, well, I can't touch that money because it's blood money. Selective ethics and morality. The hypocrisy of that is unbelievable. Judas ends up throwing the silver into the temple probably because the priest retreated behind an area where Judas couldn't get to and out of frustration just maybe throws the silver into the temple, the 30 pieces that he got in exchange for turning over his Savior, he thought. But that's not all. Judas goes out and then hangs himself. He commits suicide over this unresolved guilt in his soul. And sadly, of course, people do that every single day, thinking that suicide is the only way out. But suicide can't resolve the guilt. What drove Judas to try and resolve that that guilt he had, that was the only way that he saw to try and do that. The priests now are in a bit of a pickle because they can't accept this money. Again, it's blood money. So they decided to buy a field with the money known as the potter's field. Not exactly sure why it's called the potter's field. It could be because a potter owned it or a group of potters owned it. It could be one guy thought that maybe that's where the potters got their clay. And there's no more clay, so now they just have a field on the market because it's not worth anything anymore. Either way, it's now called a delkama, which is the field of blood. And it was bought with blood money. And Matthew says, as he quotes Jeremiah, he says, except it's not Jeremiah. It's actually Zechariah. Some of you might have a note there, Zechariah eleven thirteen, which says, Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price by which I was priced by them. So I took 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So why does Matthew say it was Jeremiah? Well, probably two reasons, because, well, Jeremiah's a better-known prophet, and, and when you have a lesser-known prophet and a better-known prophet talking about some of the same things, most of the time they're going to talk about the better-known prophet. But also, Jeremiah said similar things in bits and pieces, particularly in Jeremiah 19. So this isn't a mistake. This is just something that Matthew thought of more related to Jeremiah than Zechariah. It's a side matter. The real matter here is Judas. Judas overcome with guilt. Because he has this guilt for what he did. He changed his mind. He is now guilty of what he has done. But note, he is not overcome with repentance. He's overcome with guilt. And we can learn something very important here from this seemingly out-of-place little account. Guilt is not the same thing as repentance. Guilt is not the same thing as repentance. It's really tempting for me to jump out here to Peter, to another account in John, and show you how Peter was restored because Peter repented. 
And we see the contrast of Judas and how he was not restored and how his guilt consumed him and Peter, how he was restored because he repented. But I won't do that even though I kind of just did. Peter repented. Judas did not. If you don't repent from your guilt, it will eventually kill you. Let me say that again. If you don't repent from your guilt, it will eventually kill you. To repent means to turn. You're turning away from something, and therefore, you are turning towards something else. In this case, you're turning away from your sin, and you would be turning towards faith in Jesus Christ. Biblical repentance includes a feeling of guilt. It's an awareness of sin with conviction, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just terminate on guilt. It, it, it continues into repentance and change. It's a change in mind that therefore leads to a change in behavior. That's biblical repentance. Judas just stopped at guilt, a change in mind. Worldly remorse, guilt of the flesh, stops short of repentance. Guilt is just sorry you got caught. That's what guilt is. Guilt is you know you did something wrong and you wish you didn't do that. Repentance is change. Judas knew he did something wrong. He was guilty. He was not repentant. The Bible says there's a huge difference between godly grief for sin and worldly grief in a place like 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see the difference there? There is a difference between godly grief and then worldly grief. Godly grief is repentance. It leads to change. It leads to life. Worldly grief just means you feel bad. You feel guilty. Guilt is that tension we feel in our souls when we come to Jesus before our sins are forgiven. We feel the weight of our sins, and it's what should actually drive us to Jesus in order to be forgiven. You have to do something. You have to resolve this guilt somehow for your sins. And so you should come to faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Let's be clear, forgiveness from Jesus is the only way to have the guilt removed. That's what Judas missed. But even after we're Christians, church, when we sin, we feel that guilt. We feel that weight, and we know we've gone off the path, but we have to be very, very careful, church, Christians, to differentiate between guilty feelings and actual guilt. As a Christian, you are not guilty. And you're not guilty because Jesus poured out all of his blood on the cross for you, every single sin. Y'all were not alive when Jesus... I got Southern there for a second. You were not alive when Jesus was on the cross. So every single one of your sins was a future sin. He looked and he said, yes, I see Mike, the one hot mess that Mike is, and I'm going to pay for all of his future sins that he will do. I'm going to buy him. I'm going to redeem him with my blood. He is mine. And so we are forgiven the moment we come to Jesus Christ for all of our sins, past, present, and future. But when we stray off the path, when we act not in line with who we are, we feel it, don't we? I wouldn't call that guilt because it's not guilt because you're not guilty. I'd call that conviction. I call that the Holy Spirit saying, hello, something's wrong. You call yourself a Christian the Holy Spirit's living inside you, yet you're wandering off the path. And we think that's a guilty feeling. We have to be very, very careful. 
that we do not think that we are guilty because that trips a lot of Christians up. You need to go right back to the cross and you need to say, I am not guilty through faith in Jesus Christ. And you need to secure the forgiveness that was won for you on the cross. And you need to know that it is yours. And you need to understand that through faith. And when you feel that conviction, let that guide you back. Bring our activity, church, in line with our identity. Bring your activity, what you're doing, bring that in line with your identity. And guilt is not the same thing as repentance. All right, so let's jump back into the main narrative. We have much work to do. Let's jump back to verse 1. I know some of you were starting to twitch. Okay, look at verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now skip the little story about Judas and go to verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So if we track back to verse 1, the Sanhedrin council declared Jesus guilty of blasphemy, right? Because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah. And they said, that's it. That's blasphemy. You're a man. You're not God. You are deserving of death. They have one teeny, teeny problem with that. They can't kill anybody. They have lost their privilege of execution. They are a Roman-occupied country, so therefore Rome says if anybody's going to do any executions around here, it's going to be us, not you. And so now they have to get Rome to go along with this plan in order to get Jesus executed. They need Rome to do their dirty work for them. So they conspire, they come up with a plan about what they're going to do to try and get Rome interested in this so that they could execute him. So first thing in the morning, as soon as Rome town hall opens up, they handcuff Jesus and they march right over to Pilate. And Pilate is a Roman governor in the region of Judea. And Pontius Pilate is basically the guy who's in charge of keeping peace for Rome in Judea. And it's a terrible place to keep peace because there's not much peace. Even today, there's not a lot of peace over there. There's always some sort of conflict. There's always some sort of revolt. There's always some sort of tension. Pilate is also crazy. He's also cruel. He's also vindictive. But he's in a difficult spot because Judah's a powder keg, so he can't really just clamp down on them with an iron fist because Rome will then get the attention that maybe he's not doing his job and why are things so out of control so much. And so there's this kind of political dance that he has to do with the Jewish people in Israel. He has to placate them. He has to play nice with them. And it must drive him crazy. He's like, why did I get this, this assignment? Why am I in Judea with these crazy Jewish people and their laws and all I have to do is keep the peace with them? Pilate usually resides in his palace beach estate in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. But every once in a while, he's got to be in Jerusalem. And so when he's in Jerusalem, he gets an Airbnb like a palace, right? And he's there, and I'll bet he does not want to be there. But he has to be there because it's Passover, and he wants to make sure that everything is quiet. And he wants to make sure that there's no uprising. And so he's there with all the men that Rome has allowed him to be in his uh, military little detachment there. 
Matthew's version of these events is quite condensed, but we have the luxury of three other accounts in Mark, Luke, and John, John being the most detailed if you wanted to look at that later. And if I could just fill in some of the blanks here that Matthew leaves out, the the Jews uh, march up to Pilate with Jesus in handcuffs. Pilate, I'm sure, is rolling his eyes like, ugh, what now? Who is this? Pilate says, what's going on? Who's this? What's the deal with him? Why are you here? He said, well, well, you see, Mr. Pontius Pilate, governor, sir, we need you to deal with him because, you know, he's a criminal and, and he deserves to die. Pilate says, cool story. I don't care. This, this is between you guys. This is, this is some of your little weird Jewish law that you guys deal with. It's your problem. You deal with it. I'm not having anything to do with it. And they say, well, well, Pilate, hold on. He actually said that he was a king. He claimed to be king. And that can't be good, can it, Pilate? Because you're the king. And you can't have two kings. So this guy, when you really think about it, Pilate, he is actually usurping your authority. He's actually leading a rebellion against Rome right here by calling himself king. Like, you can't possibly let that happen. You better at least question him. Luke tells it in in, uh, Luke chapter 23, first five verses. So the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Really? And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They're really laying it on here. And Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And he answered them, You have said so. And Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I'm still not buying it. I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, no, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. They said, Pilate, you can't let this go. Pilate brings him inside, questions him. If we tune back to Matthew, verse 11, he says again, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him the same way that he answered Judas when Judas said, is it me? And the same way that he answered Caiaphas when Caiaphas asked him, are you the king of the Jews or are you the Messiah? He simply says, you said it. Your words, you said it. And he holds his tongue after that. The men all around him, of course, the chief priests and the Pharisees continuing to berate him and level these charges against him. And Pilate says, don't you hear them? You hear what they're saying? You hear these charges? Are you at least going to answer them? Are you really going to just sit there and say nothing? Jesus says nothing. We just read it in Isaiah 53. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. He doesn't have to defend himself. He knows his life is on the line. He knows he's headed for the cross. That is the mission that he has to take. He gave no actual answer against the charges that were leveled at him. Make no mistake, church, this is not weakness. This is meekness. This is power under control. This is Jesus on mission, resolved, strong, fully relying on the Father fully resolved to do what God the Father has called him to do. This astounds Pilate. He doesn't know what to say. I mean, Jesus should be on his knees before Pilate hysterically begging for his life. But he's standing there not saying a word. He doesn't answer a single charge. Jesus is completely innocent, and he doesn't have to prove that to anybody. 
Here's what I'll say. Jesus became guilty in order to forgive the guilty. Jesus became, air quotes, guilty in order to forgive the guilty. He was called guilty by the Jews. He was eventually called guilty by Rome, even though he was not actually guilty. And he did that to go to the cross to forgive those who were actually guilty. The Jewish leaders are actually guilty. They're guilty of legalism. They're guilty of hypocrisy. They're guilty of a failure to shepherd and lead Israel. But most of all, they're guilty of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and railroading him, an innocent man, lying about him and getting him killed. And church, we too are actually guilty. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God in our sin. We rejected Jesus. We made ourselves king of our lives at one point. And the only way that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God is through Jesus the innocent. We'll pay for our guilt on the cross. This is a massive doctrinal truth that every Christian needs to get their arms around. Jesus was not guilty of anything. Not of blasphemy like the Jews said, nor was he guilty of trying to usurp Rome's power by calling himself again a king. Jesus is perfect and Jesus is sinless. But he became as if he were guilty, though he wasn't. He became sin even though he never actually sinned. And the Apostle Paul, again, in his, one of his letters to the Corinthians, comes out and says this point blank in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what's happening here, church. This is the massive truth to get our arms around. So God loves us. Sure, God loves us. But sometimes do we maybe focus on, on more of the love of God than the actual mechanics, if you will, of what happened at the gospel, what happened at the cross, what did Jesus actually accomplish for us? I heard a podcaster this week said, we need to not only have a John 3.16 Christianity, but we also have to have a 2 Corinthians 5.21 Christianity. Sure, God loves us. Sure, we believe in him and we have eternal life. But do we know why? Do we know why? Do we also have a 2 Corinthians 5.21 faith where we know what Jesus did by taking our sin upon himself even though he never sinned? This is big theology called penal substitutionary atonement. He takes the punishment for us, substituting himself in our place. Jesus is taking the guilt, the sin, and the wrath of God in our place that we deserved. You know what it costs, Jesus. Do we understand that Jesus took our sin, though he knew no sin, in order that those in him who have faith might become innocent to God? Do you see that? It's what Luther called the great exchange, right? He takes our sin, even though he had none, and he gives us his righteousness. That's what Jesus is doing right here at this moment. He's taking on this guilt in front of these mere human beings, who accuse him of these things. And then the Father lays on him, as, as Paul read in um, Isaiah 53, the guilt of all of our iniquity on his shoulders at the cross. 
And Jesus became guilty in order to forgive the guilty. The funny thing is that Pilate knows this full well. He knows full well that Jesus isn't guilty of anything and worthy of death. So he's going to try one more thing to get the Jews to back down from this little trial they have here. Look at verse 15. It says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And when they had a, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much today in a dream because of him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. These guys just don't quit, do they? The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, well, then what should I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? They said, let him be crucified. They said, why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Remember the role of Pilate here. He's in a very precarious position. He does not want to attract any negative attention from his bosses in Rome. To that end, he apparently has a custom, or maybe it's the Jewish custom that he just goes along with, whatever, that maybe at this big feast time, this big political move, I'll release one of your prisoners, and maybe that will keep you guys happy and quiet. And so it's time to do that. Good timing. He's got Jesus, who he knows is innocent, and everything smells like this guy's getting framed, and he's got Barabbas, who we know is an actual murderer. And so he says, hey, guys, which one do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? I mean, he killed somebody. He'll, he'll probably kill again. You probably don't want him back on the streets. So how about, you know, how about we try Jesus? And they say, no. We want Barabbas. And, of course, the high priests have been working the crowd, saying, when he asks the question, make sure you say Barabbas, not Jesus. Meanwhile, to make matters worse for Pilate, his, work, his wife comes to him and says, uh, Honey, look, I had this dream about this guy. You don't want to be anywhere near this. This is all bad news. This is an innocent man. She calls him a righteous man. Back then, if you had a dream, it was like a direct revelation from the gods. It was an omen, and they took it very, very seriously. And so this is weighing on Pilate as well. He gives it another try, and he says, okay, really, seriously, this time, who do you want me to release? Surely not Barabbas. Let's release Jesus. And the answer again, give us Barabbas. And Pilate protests. He says, well, what do I do with Jesus? Is he crucify him? Protests again and says, why? What evil has he done? I can see right through this. To crucify him. Pilate realizes this isn't going the way that he wants and things are about to turn ugly. Can you imagine that? I mean, the, the inner turmoil of, of Pilate must have been going through seeing that this was happening. I'm not trying to feel sorry for him or anything. But seeing the people turn on an innocent man like that. There's another gospel account, I, I think it's in John, where Pilate says, what should I do then with your king? The Jewish people then respond at this moment. The Jewish people respond, we have no king but Caesar. What? 
You just denied, all of you just denied God as your king in order to get Jesus killed. This crowd has officially lost their minds at this point. They want Jesus dead so bad that they will say anything, do anything in order to get him on the cross. Pilate realized that this is about to blow up and he has no choice because that's the last thing he wants is a riot, especially when the city is swelled with millions of people for the Passover feast. Look at verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. And he released for them Barabbas. And after having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate knows he's getting nowhere. He knows what he has to do. An attempt to rid himself of the guilt of innocent blood. He symbolically and physically takes water and washes his hands in front of the crowd and says, it's not on me. Here's my guilt. I'm, this is not me. This is you. I'm getting rid of my guilt. Except he wasn't. Except he wasn't fooling anybody. Except he's still the one that's going to have to give the orders that say crucify this man. So he can wash his hands all he wants, but he's still guilty. People are more than willing to take the blood of Jesus on themselves and their children. Did you catch that? After he says, it's not me, it's on you. And they're like, no problem. We'll take it. We'll take the guilt. Even our kids will take the guilt. What? The sickness, the idolatry, the madness that that is. Pilate releases Barabbas and hands Jesus over to men who scourge him or scourge him. And a Roman scourging, if you saw a passion of the Christ, you know exactly what that is. This, this whip that has several strands to it and along those strands are embedded uh, metal or glass or maybe even fish hooks or something like that. And the idea is then when you whip it, you embed it into the skin and then as it embeds in the skin, you pull it back and you rip out chunks of flesh. So much so that they said you could see bone, you could see inner organs. Sometimes people died from just being scourged. Think about that. This is what Jesus is, is going through. Many people died simply from being scourged like that. The Jews, of course, in their... Um, Mercy would limit just a simple whipping to 40 lashes. The Romans had no such restrictions. The Jews are guilty. The crowd is guilty. Pilate is guilty. And here's the point. We are all guilty. The Jews knew full well that Jesus was innocent, but in their religious fanaticism, they convinced himself he needed to die. The crowd, whipped up into a frenzy, demands that Pilate crucify him. Pilate, although he decides to try to distance himself from the guilt, still had to give the order for Jesus to be crucified. Symbolically washing his hands again, one commentator says, his theatrical abdication of responsibility is not likely to convince anyone but himself. The Bible is completely clear. There are none righteous, not even one, Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I think of the song that we sometimes sing, 
how deep the Father's love for us, which has the line in it, ashamed I hear my mocking voice calling out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Who sent Jesus to the cross? The answer is that everyone did. The Jewish leaders, the Jewish crowd, Pontius Pilate, you and me, but over all that, of course, was God himself, the Father, in his sovereign plan of redeeming the greatest evil that ever happened to a perfect man for the greatest good and the redemption of those who will seek him. And we will all face judgment for our guilt, and we are all guilty. It was our guilt, it was humanity's sin that made the cross necessary in the first place. We are all guilty before God, and so how do we remove that guilt? We're back to that. How do we remove that guilt? The guilt of Judas' sin led him to hang himself. Israel and its leaders faced judgment in 70 AD when Rome finally had enough and they destroyed the city and killed millions. And one day they will all stand before Jesus in final judgment. I was thinking about that. Like these men, these people, those who whipped Jesus, those who screamed from the crowd, crucify him, all those high priests who came up with this whole plan, they will stand before the risen Christ. And they will be judged for their sin. Pilate was guilty. He tried to rid himself of the guilt, but there's no way his theatrical hand-washing could do that. There's no way it could remove the guilt of ordering the Son of God to be murdered on a cross. And one day Pilate and all his Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross and scourged him will stand before the risen Christ. You and I will stand before Jesus himself one day in final judgment with the idea of our guilt hanging in the background. Where is our guilt? How is our guilt forgiven? Will our guilt be held against us for sin or not? And it's either going to be held against us and we will pay for it in eternity in hell or we will have the guilt of our sin put on the shoulders of Jesus Christ on the cross where it can be forgiven. So hopefully I'll wrap it up this way. Only the cross of Jesus removes the guilt of sin. Only the cross of Jesus removes the guilt of sin. We all have that guilt of sin in our souls, but our guilt is not the same thing as repentance. There's no medication, there's no substance, there's no refuge on earth that can remove our actual guilt before a holy God. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do that. Only the cross of Jesus Christ can actually do that. But church, this isn't automatic for everyone. It requires repentance. It requires that turning. When Len led the table, he says, if you have consciously repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, that's what this is talking about. This is not automatic. It requires repentance. It requires a turning. It requires looking our guilt straight in the face and saying, I have sinned. I agree with God that I'm a sinner and I turn then from my sin and I turn to Jesus Christ. And if you have not consciously done that today, I urge you to do that. Talk to someone about how to do that. Only the cross of Jesus removes the guilt of sin. Why? How? Because he, Jesus, the innocent, became guilty for us. He took our guilt in order to remove our guilt. And if you haven't consciously understood that again you haven't consciously understood the weight of your sin before a holy God, that's the first step. 
to remove your guilt, that's the first step. Come to Christ. Return to the cross. If you have walked with Christ before and you feel the guilt, the conviction of sin, return to the cross. Return to the reality that your guilt has been removed. Obtain the forgiveness that Christ has won for you on the cross and align your activity with your identity. Walk out who you are. Know that all that guilt for sin has been removed on the cross. And when the conviction of sin comes into our lives, be quick to run to the cross where it was removed. And run in the path of his commands because he sets your heart free. The author of Hebrews talks about this in, in very good summary fashion. In Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll land the plane here. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 19, he says, Therefore, after just explaining about Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a full and true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Some translations have a guilty conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Church, because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that then becomes the motivation for us to live lives of freedom and fullness and worship. We draw near to him with full assurance that our sins have been forgiven. We hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering. We stir one another up to love and good works. We gather together as the church and in the household of faith, we honor one another. We encourage one another. And eventually we await Jesus' return. Why? Because what unites us? Jesus. The cross of Jesus. Only the cross of Jesus can remove the guilt of sin. Father, as we look at this passage Lord, it is, it is hard for us to see Jesus in our, in our mind's eye, the, the perfect, sinless Son of God, falsely accused of blasphemy when He really was Jesus the Messiah, taken before Rome and falsely accused of, of trying to start a revolt against the government and claiming to establish His kingdom. And Lord, we see that we... we we get angry, we think about it, how he was innocent. But Lord, we know that this was your plan to use the greatest evil that was ever done for the greatest good. Help us to internalize these things, Lord. Help us to, to remember what the cross of Christ means for us as Christians, as your children, that we are not guilty because of sin. We have been forgiven but help us to align our activity with who we are, our identity. Lord, for those who have not yet turned, who have not consciously repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, would they do that today? Would they start that life fresh, knowing that their guilt for sin has been removed? And we pray that you would bear much fruit through the making and maturing of disciples. And we pray it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.